Well, we have started our series here that we've been going over called What's Next, not original concept with us. It actually began from a church called the Church of the Highlands with Chris Hodges, an amazing book. Um, I hate reading. I, got my, I, I have a, a doctoral degree. I've read more stuff than you will ever have to even look at. And I do not recommend books lightly, but I'm telling you that I'm telling you, if you, whether you were in the faith for 30 years or just three seconds, this is a great book for you to pick up and read. And it's on Amazon. It's available in Kindle. It's available through Christian book distributors, but highly recommend it to you. And it's really given shape for us as a church for the things that we have to look at and say, why are we here? Why do we do what we do? Why, why don't we have bingo on Friday nights and, and why is it that we have altar calls on Sunday morning? It's because the church is here for a reason. God put the church here for a reason. And I believe with all my heart, the local church is God's answer to the world. And that it's through the local Christian that we touch the lives of those that are around us. Every single one of us has a mission and a usefulness to heaven. And he wants to help you discover that and set you loose. And in order to get there, we have to take some steps. And so the first couple of steps are really four that we have with little things in between for you. But the first is this, to know God. Listen, not only does, do we hear like, hey, know God, but God wants you to know him. God wants you to know him up close and personal, intimately, as a loving father, as a God that is there for you in your hour of need. And he wants to show himself for who he is, not who our, our contemporary culture would present him to be. Another thing is, is that we find freedom. I found this, and any of you have been in this church for a while, you hear me say this all the time, that we always often go to God vertically and we say, Lord, forgive me. Maybe you have a struggle in your life. Maybe there's an addiction. Maybe you have an anger issue. Maybe, maybe I don't know what it is. Different strokes for different folks, but you're constantly going to heaven saying, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. And then you find yourself in that treadmill. It's because we find forgiveness vertically but we find freedom horizontally with other people in our lives. We all need people in our lives that will go up to us and say, you are not as bad as they say you are, but you're not as good as you think you are. So let me get behind you and cheer you in your low moments and help be a guardrail for you in your challenging moments, and let's do life together. And that's the way that God made the church, to be together. In fact, there's a fancy word for this that the early church, and any of you have been doing Christianity for a while, know that word called fellowship. And it used to just mean big bellies and potluck dinners every Sunday where everyone hangs out, but it means so much more than that. It means doing life together. It means holding each other accountable. It means praying for those, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice joys. And then, of course, discovering purpose. Jesus said, go into all the world. We're not just called to come into the church on Sunday, but this is a launching point that we would go into the places that God has placed us, into the settings that he set us in, so that we could make a difference, that God would take you, your unique design, and that you would share him with the world. Now, a lot of people are kind of like, well, how do, I, how do I share Jesus? You know, we, you know do we, there used to be this format, you know, and it's a good one, actually, but it was from Evangelism Explosion. Heaven's a free gift. You hitch a ride. Don't hitchhike anymore. It's not safe. Used to be in the 60s. Ain't anymore. Heaven's a free gift, but you're a sinner. So God, the Father, looked down and sent his only son so that you could reach out by faith and grab the gift. And, and you can memorize a bazillion verses on it, but you know what I've come to find? The easiest way to make a difference is when I go up to somebody, instead of telling them what to do, I just simply tell them what God did for me. I say, you know what? I was just like out of my mind. I was out of control. Or I was in control, but just out of peace. And Jesus, I, I just opened up my heart and asked him to take control, and I let go of it, and I've never been the same. And, and I carried around so much guilt and shame, and, and he came. And you know what's amazing? When you begin to share like that, all of a sudden people perk up. They're like, Wow. Man, who, how, about, how, how many people do you know if you went up to them and said, hey, do you need more peace in your life? They'd be like, nah, I'm all fine, man, you know? <laughs> d d don't need it, you know? And of course, and, and, and sometimes the way that people know God from our contemporary culture is so far off from who he is. And uh, we want to help you in taking those next steps. And as you can see, we're going to leave these steps on the floor here, so cleaning crew, don't clean those up. But these are just here as a reminder to help us see the different steps as we go through these next four weeks, knowing God, finding freedom, discovering purpose, making a difference, so that we can walk in everything that God has for us. I, I just say this just initially up front. If you're here and you're in this church, two, two easy steps are here for you, and, and they're really baby steps is this. First thing is, is that we have every Sunday, the first through the fourth Sunday, on a repeating basis, a class called Next. If you go to the last room on the right in this building, 
at nine o'clock every Sunday morning, we go through every single one of these things. And we, we do some, there's some great things that we do. In fact, in some of the spots, we do personality profiles, spiritual gift tests, Myers-Briggs, DISC, really stuff that helps you really say like, yeah, that's totally me. That's how I'm shaped. Like if you're an introvert, God is not going to make you an extrovert. He's going to use you the way he made you. You know, you will never see my wife up here speaking on a Sunday morning. And how many of you with her would say, thank you, Jesus? Like, it terrifies you to get up here and speak. Me, on the other hand, I'm the baby of the family. You're like, please, he loves hearing him speak so much. Let me out of here. But like, once you discuss, the two most important days of your life is the day you were born. The second one is, is when you realize why you were born, the purpose. And we want to help you discover that. You know that 80% of people in the church never even stop to ask this question, What's the purpose that God has designed me for and how do I leverage the way God has made me to make a difference in the world around me? God's not looking to make you every single one of you preachers. Absolutely not. He, he wants to make you be living billboards and living, you know, ads for how good God is and what he's done for you. The easiest way to make a difference in the world, just tell somebody what he did for you. How many of you, God did something good for you? He changed your life. That, look at this. Imagine if every single one of us this week shared that message with just one person and said, you need to come to the place where, where, where it all started, where God is continually working on me, and I'm coming to know him more and more. Just change this community. Change Merrimack Valley. Until hell ceases to be a reality and heaven ceases to be a reality, the church will continue to be a reality, and the gospel of Jesus Christ will continue to be. And that's why we're here but our culture distorts the message. It says it like this. Know me. Find a platform. Discover fame. Then make a dollar. There are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of diversity in our church. In fact, can I tell you how proud I am as a community that every, not only nation, tribe, and tongue is in this church, but there are all kinds of socioeconomic differences. We have some people who have just come out of a life of devastation and drugs and are knowing what it's like to have a family and live in a home for the first time. There are other people that have been successful or blessed through business or family momentum and they've had millions of dollars and not one person turns to the person next to them and looks at them any different because of those settings because we're all one in Jesus. Amen? I've had some friends through the years, two in particular I'm thinking of right now, one specifically, he was worth about $8 million, and then overnight, it was all gone. And I remember going up to him and saying, hey, like, how do you deal with that? And he used to always say it to me like this. He goes, Paul, he called me Paulie. Hey, Paulie. Um, you can guess his nationality, right? Hey, Paulie. He goes, it's real easy going from hot dogs to steak. The difficulty is going from steak to hot dogs. But I grew up on hot dogs. Pass the ketchup. Notice I didn't say mustard or mayo right there. <laughs> and it just blows my mind how much peace he could have in his life. If I lost like $50, I'm freaking out. He lost like $7 million. And he said, you know what? We had it when the kids were young. Thank God it's there, but that's not my security. I'm not here to make a dollar. I'm here to make a difference. I will be honest with you. Money does not buy happiness, but it definitely puts some down payments on some serious sorrows, right? So let's get real here. But on the other hand, money is not the source of happiness. And the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. It was interesting that last night there was a cookout at one of our family's uh, house. They opened it up to young adults. And Pastor Dylan was telling me the conversation uh, that was going on there. And one of them was the classic question. Raise your hand if you've ever been asked this. Where do you want to see yourself in five years from now, right? All right, like, uh, in a car accident. Like, I mean, just like, on the street. Like, we all want better for ourselves, don't we? Do you realize that 96, we are the, uh, that the poorest person in this room is ranked in the top 6% of wealth in the entire world? The average person lives on a mud hut and a dirt floor on a starvation diet. And, you know, blessing and security is very relative and when you commit your life to make a dollar, what you'll find out is uh, what J.D. Rockefeller said. They said, how much, how much is enough? He said, just one more dollar, just one more dollar. Money might put down some down payments on sorrow, but it doesn't purchase happiness. And here's the thing Pastor Dylan said, you know, as we were thinking about that, he said a verse came to me that said, you know, that wealth is a wall. And what you do is, is as you begin to have that security financially, you begin to think that you're safe. But the Bible also says that wealth is like a bird that it can 
can sprout wings and fly away. And just like my friends, $7 million overnight, it's gone. And people are taking their life over that stuff. This isn't our life. Listen, he is our life. And nothing is promised to us, but I know this, that one day we are going to stand in the presence of Jesus and we are going to have the same reward that everyone else has. And in fact, the crowns that the Bible says that were given to us for our good works, for sharing Jesus, looking for his coming, all those things, the Bible says that the elders take those off and throw them at the feet of Jesus anyway. God is good regardless of our circumstances. We need to be content in them. And so there was a woman that was content in her life until she had a heart attack. So she's rushed to the hospital, and they are trying to defibrillate her. Nothing works. She finds herself standing in the throne of God, in the presence of Jesus. Jesus goes, oh, my daughter, it's not your time yet. I just wanted you to see what waited you here in eternity. And she's looking around. She's looking at streets of gold and all the things that the Bible talks about. She's like, oh. he goes, but listen, I'm going to give you 30 more years. I'm going to send you back for 30 more years. And she's like, okay, I can't wait. Thank you, Jesus. She comes back. All of a sudden, she says to the doctor, she says, I'm fine. I've got 30 more years ahead of me. Listen, doctor, before I leave here, I want to ask a couple of things. My insurance, I know, will cover it. I got great coverage. Uh, I want you to give me an extreme makeover. I'm a 40-year-old woman. Three, three kids later, I want to look beautiful again. Would you give me a tummy tuck? And they're like, yes, we will. She's like, can you fix my nose for me? And they're like, yes, ma'am. They're like, can you lift my face? They're like, oh, man, they worked her over. She was gorgeous. She had more plastic in her than some of your kids' toys. And she was done over with plastic surgery. She was there. She walks out of the door, gets into the street. She's walking with swagger, saying, I got 30 more years. Boom! She's hit by an ambulance and killed. She's standing before God, and she goes, I thought you said 30 more years, Lord. And the Lord says, yes, yeah, sweetheart, but I didn't recognize who you were. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's funny. You got to admit that. Come on. <laughs> but the irony of this is that the opposite is true when it comes to the image of God in the culture that we live in. <clears throat> so many of us have given God such a makeover, such a facelift, such a change that people that this culture does Jesus over so much that people who really, really know who he is look at the Jesus that's presented in this culture and we're like, I don't even recognize who that is. Who is that? That's not Jesus. That's not the Jesus that the Bible speaks of. That's not the Jesus that I know. Because we remake God in our own image. The truth be told, in some cases, and in my case, before I really began to read the word of God and know who God really was, I realized I wasn't worshiping God. I was worshiping an idol where him and I were okay. And I was okay to be the way I wanted to be and do the things that I wanted to do and that he was okay with that. And I realized I wasn't worshiping God. I was worshiping a God, an idol who I recreated in my own image, who I gave a facelift to and a tummy tuck to and trimmed and nipped and tucked. And I was comfortable with that image of who he was, but it wasn't him at all. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning here. What is it to really, really know who God is intimately, closely? for who he really is, not who we want him to be, but for who he really is. Because here's what I believe. If you, see, if you see Jesus Christ for who he really is, man, it's like the most beautiful person walking into a room. You're like, I, I want to get to know that person. And the more you talk to him, the more incredible you realize he is. The more that, that there's more to him than meets the eye. And certainly what our culture would help us to try and see him for who he is. He's amazing. He's beautiful. He's all man, and yet he is tender all at the same time. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray as we talk about knowing you, that you would help me this morning. You'd help me lay out a path with some basic steps for us to start at the starting point of knowing who you are. And Lord, for those that know you well, that we would not stop growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul says. Lord, knowing you is not coming to you with a prayer. It's maintaining a close relationship every day, falling in love with you again and again. And I pray that you'd help us by your grace to come to know who you really are. Because if we see you for who you are, we might see us for who we aren't. But we will want to be like you. 
for the rest of our lives. Give us the grace to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The first thing you've got to understand about knowing God is simply this, that God wants you to know him. God wants you to know him. There are all kinds of beliefs out there from mankind, from humanity, about who God is and what we believe about him. For instance, an atheist disbelieves the existence of a supreme being whatsoever. It's all chemistry, it's all physics, it's explosion, right things, happenstance, boom, that's it. Um, I just recently had my car stolen. I'm going to take a stick of dynamite to the junkyard. My prediction is when I blow it up, I'm going to pull out of there with a nice BMW baby, right? If that works, I will totally change my religion. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But an agnostic, so an atheist believes a big explosion happened and boom, BMW, perfect universe. An agnostic is somebody that believes that there, there is a God, but you can't really know him. Too elusive, don't bother trying. Then you've got the deist. That, that's somebody who believes that there's a God and he created the world and then he just walked away from it, totally disinterested in it or us. My goodness, how disappointing. That's like an abandonment. And then you've got the higher power for any of us that did Alcoholics Anonymous or AA or Al-Anon, Alateen, all that stuff. We love you, I'm an alcoholic. We love you. Uh, what's your higher power? I don't know if you knew this, but Alcoholics Anonymous began as a Christian program focused on Christ. It is so far from what it is uh, today but it is helping a lot of people. My mom has been in it for about 40 years now, and um, I thank God for the day that that support network came around her, but it was insufficient for her, her life and her walk because she's a Christian, and she came to realize Jesus for who he is, and she became a Christian, and she believes that God is real, that he can be known he wants to be known by you. He knows everything about you and still loves you. That's a challenge in and of itself, right? That the punishment for the wrong and the sin that would keep us from heaven was put on his son Jesus because God never gives up his love for his justice and he never gives up his justice for his love. He satisfied the full wrath of his hatred for sin by taking it out on Christ on the cross so that he could embrace us in love and look at us and say, you're clean, you're free. You can't earn this. You'll never be good enough. If you try and say, oh, you ask people, you're going to get to heaven? I hope so, I hope so. You don't have to hope so today. You can know so because God has made himself known through his son, Jesus Christ, and he offers forgiveness of sin and eternal life through him. And so this weekend, as I was uh, kind of reflecting back on my message, I kind of, I was sitting in my back of my yard and uh, I always prayed this prayer. I said, God, just give me a house with field stones, a field, a fireplace, a forest, I've got, it's the first time in my life I don't have somebody living directly in back of me, you know, like, hey, pass the sugar, you know, that kind of setup. Like, but I've, there's a, a ton, the only section of woods in the entire town of Haverhill right up against that, my house. And so every once in a while, a homeless person stumbles out of there, a junkie comes out throwing up, but it's a forest, it's good. And I've got a fireplace, it's not in my house, but I got a fire pit and I'm sitting back there, I'm cooking it, I'm pretending like I'm a millionaire, I got my marshmallows, I'm reflecting on my day. But I'm also reflecting on the challenging week I had. That was a challenging week and doesn't even compare to some of the tragedies that um, Stephen had mentioned to us here this morning. Family suffering loss, no comparison to that. But last week, someone boosted our car right out of our driveway. Like, I'd have killed him with a fork if I caught him. I, like, I couldn't believe it, the nerve that they took it right out of my driveway. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, now thank goodness I didn't end our insurance. It was comprehensive coverage, and I forgot to end it. I was going to turn it into liability only, um, but the truth of the matter is it had like 145,000 miles on it. We bought it almost new, and we had another like 10 years of driving it, and we're like, we're going to get every penny out of this vehicle. It's gone. They'll give us about maybe 25% of what the vehicle's worth. Anybody ever have this happen to them? Like, you know, you're like, I follow you, pastor. I feel your pain, right? I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I'm, so I'm thinking about this and that, and then all of a sudden, I'm thinking about stuff at the office, and I jump into this mode, and I'm, I'm, I'm barking at my son, Ethan, and I know he's not in the room right now. I think he was sitting there, but I start barking at my son, Ethan. I'm like, Ethan, get up. You got teenagers, you understand. If you don't, you'll understand someday. But I, I'm, I'm yelling at him, and then I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm texting Pastor Dylan all day long. Hey, do this, do that, check this, check that. And he's coming into the office for the day, but I'm like sitting there, and I realize I'm grabbing on to things for control because I just don't have it because my car got stolen, and I got problems. And then all of a sudden, the Lord whispers this 
verse in my heart. For those of you that are new to church, when somebody talks like that, it's not like I have Jesus' cell phone number or anything. It just means like something came to my mind that just wouldn't normally come there, and I know like it's God helping me understand he's trying to talk to me. And I, I, hear the, I, I just hear the, this verse I memorized years ago, real simple. It's Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I'm God. Now, here's the thing. When, when, uh, you remember playing freeze tag, right? Or red light, green light, one, two, three? Red light, green light, one, two, three. And every time somebody keeps trying, getting closer and closer to you, and then if they turn around, you've got to freeze. <laughs> it's really hard, too. You know, you're like... So we think of being still like that. And we think about, like, knowing is just understanding. But we're a church, like, we believe... The Bible is written in Old Testament and Hebrew, New Testament and Greek... I've got just enough knowledge of those languages to be dangerous and turn you into a cult members, so I've got to be careful. But in all seriousness, and just joking there, but in all seriousness, we don't talk about language unless it means something. And man, it means so much in this verse. See, the Hebrew word for to be still, rafah, literally means to let go. It doesn't mean freeze. It means you've got such a tight grip of control. That if you want to know God, you need to let it go. And in fact, the word know is that same word we keep talking about over and over again. Yada. You know, Hebrew, Jewish people, if you're talking, they're like, I know, I know, I know. They're like, yada, yada, yada. I know, I know, I know. You know, but it really is this intimate knowledge by encountering and experiencing it with your physical senses. It's about as good as no gets. It's not no like a college degree. It's know that you know and you're knower that you'd bank your life on it. And the little contraction in between is not so much used here as and, but it's really saying, let go of control, because through doing that, you'll come to know who God really is. How many of you hear God talking to the deep chaos in your soul? Is there anyone else like me that when the going gets rough, you get in control? I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. And you just jump in there and we, we get so busy and we try to make things happen and we count all our little, you know, acorns and we, we do that. And don't tell me what, uh, that, you know, not to be involved in stuff because if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And it's just the way that it works. But there are some things in this life, no matter how much you try, no matter how much you do, I'm sorry, but control is just an illusion. You were never in control to begin with. And God's inviting us, saying, listen, you want to know who I am? Stop trying to control the things that you never had control over. You can't add a minute to your life by worrying, but I'll tell you something, you can definitely take a few days off of it. And I just sat there and I was like, Lord, you're God, I'm not. I called up Pastor Dylan, I said, Dylan, take the day off. I called up, I, I, I just, my wife was away, I, I, I was yelling at, I just said this actually when you were out of the room, Ethan, but I was saying like my out of controlness, I'm yelling at you twice, right? Both mornings and then in the evening, right? Poor kid. We got a dog, so I have something to kick other than the kids here. <laughs> but it's like, it's like you're just angst and angry. My friend Tony Palo, he came here a couple of years ago during Missions Month, but he just posted on Facebook a picture of autumn leaves, and he wrote this statement in there. He said, friends, the trees are trying to show us the beauty of letting go. I don't know about you, spring's great. Summer's good, winter's doable, but the most beautiful moment of the seasons for me is fall in New England. Not just fall, but fall in New England. This is the most beautiful place in the world. And if you've never driven up to uh, the Franconia Notch, man, do it the third week in, in October, not on Sunday, do it on Saturday. But drive up there, take a look, it'll blow your mind. But you know what's interesting about that? There's one tree that refuses to let go of the leaves, it's the oak. And in fact, watch it. If you've never noticed this for the first time in your life, what you're going to see is that while all the other trees turn into these beautiful colors and fall beautifully on the ground until they dry up and you have to rake them up, the oak refuses to let go. And it will not let go of that dead leaf until the new leaf begins to grow through it. And that is why they call them stubborn oaks.
And I've come to find that my control, my stubbornness, my trying to take control of things I never had control of, sometimes is like that oak tree. And God is saying to us, learn the beauty of letting go. Am I speaking to myself here this morning? Or are you like, I'm on track. It, thank you, thank you. But, but I'm, I'm not, I'm trying to say like, man, just let go and let God. Now don't get me wrong, I have to talk to insurance companies and you've got to do your things and we've all got problems and, and challenges. But man, sometimes God is trying to help us to see the things that we can't have control over, but to know that he's God, to be still, to let control, and know, God, you're God, you're not gonna leave me or forsake me. You didn't come take trouble out of life, but you're definitely in this life with me, and you're gonna work things out for good. God isn't the author of those bad things, but he uses and leverages them for good, if you'll let him, if you'll let go. And if God makes diamonds out of pressure through coal, and if he makes pearls through the irritation of sand, what will he do in your life and what beauty will he bring forth if you allow him through his grace to use those difficult situations to bring beauty to you, to change you? But you got to be willing to let go. It doesn't work any other way. It doesn't work any other way. And so my question for you this morning is this. What effort, what motion, what thing do you have a grip on that's holding or keeping you back from the beautiful understanding that you are never in control, but God never let go of it. See, because the knowledge of God comes from the God of the knowledge. And when you really understand who God is and you really allow him to be Lord and you really trust and you really, you do what you need to do. You know, we work like it depends on us, but we trust like it depends on God. When God does that, then all of a sudden what comes with the God of the knowledge is the peace of God. And the beautiful thing of this is the New Testament says that the peace of God which passes all understanding. Like a dear friend of many of us in, in this room, David and Carol Ritchie, when she got the news that she was battling cancer. She just finished up her last wave of chemotherapy. And I bumped into him just a, a couple of uh, days ago and, and he just said to me, Paul, he says, you, you'd never believe it, but I've got such peace. I've got such peace. Or my friend who lost $8 million in a day and he said, you know what, back to hot dogs, it's gonna be all right. Or those of you that have experienced tragedy and loss or difficulty and adversity or foreclosure and personal opposition and, and people that are against you that don't have any reason to be and then when you step out and let go and you let God and you be still and know that he's God and then you begin to experience the God of the peace and the peace of God that passes understanding, you're able to look at all those situations and say, you know what? It's not, God is good even when life isn't. And the joy of the Lord's my strength. You know what? Joy is a choice. It's not a feeling. You have to pursue joy. You have to choose joy. You have to grab onto it and not let go of it. And the Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. You're not going to be overcome with this overwhelming feeling of joy. But when you come into a deeper knowledge that God is over all things and he uses those things and he's for you and he's not against you and he forgives you and he loves you and he makes a way for you, you're able to go through those situations with a peace knowing, I know that when this story is all finished, it's going to be good. I choose joy. I choose you, Jesus. There's a beautiful poem years ago. My mom, it's very familiar. In fact, probably most of you, whether you've grown up in the church context or not, you've heard this poem. But it's a poem called Footprints, and it talks about a man who had a dream, and he was walking along the beach, and the Lord was there with him, and he saw it in the form of footprints. And the sky turned into a screen for shots of his life, and his whole life was going up against the sky, and the, the two footprints were going along the ground. And all of a sudden, he noticed something, is, is that the darkest, deepest, depressing moments of his life, those hours, there was only one set of footprints along the, the beach. And so he, he took issue with this, and he said, Lord, I don't get it. What's, what's the deal here? Like, I love you. I'm pursuing you. I'm following you. Um, um, like, what's the deal here? Like, why did you abandon me in the most difficult moments of my life? And the Lord looked at him and said, son, I never left you in those moments. It was in that moment that I carried you. That poem never gets old for me because it reminds me that when I'm weak, he's still strong, that I never had to have control or my act together. And it doesn't mean that if God loves me, I have no problems, and if he doesn't, he punishes me and allows things to hurt me. It means that God is good even when life isn't, and that when I can't handle it, 
He's going to pick me up and carry me. And if he doesn't, I've got good friends in my life and I've got a group of people that help me find freedom and they're going to grab a corner of me and they're going to say, bro, this is too hard for you. We got your back. Everyone needs good friends helping them find freedom. So God wants you to know him. But not only does God want you to know him, there's a point here and it's very exclusive but you need to track with me and listen with an open head as much as an open heart. It goes like this. Know Jesus, and you'll know God. Know Jesus, know God. Let me say this, because we have a very diverse group here. There are many people here that would be, oh, wait a second. There are a lot of paths that lead to God. I'm about to tell you right now, and I'm about to do my best to validate this. If you want to know God, you know him through knowing Jesus. But if you say no to Jesus, you do not know God. Let me unpack this for you. Uh, one of our heroes is uh, Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City, graduate. He's like the poster child for Gordon Conwell, one of the schools I went to. Most brilliant mind I've ever heard when it comes to discussions of faith. Very practical, very solid. And so in Columbia University, one of the Ivy League colleges of the world, they have a, a forum called the Veritas Forum where they bring in different people to debate and talk about, you know, profound issues. And so usually when they're talking through issues related to Christianity, he's the guest um, talking about the existence of God to uh, anthropologists and physicists. And, you know, they'll, and this one time they had a whole panel of different people and two in particular stood out. It was him for Christianity and a, a, I think it was an imam or a cleric for the Muslim faith, and one of the students gets up in the, it, at the end when they have feedback Q&A, and he goes, excuse me, he goes, I've been listening to everything that you've been saying, and really it just sounds to me like you guys are saying the same thing, you know, you, you, you're the same religion, it's just a different package, and it was not Tim Keller, the Christian, that got up, it was the Muslim imam that got up and said, excuse me, you didn't listen careful enough, you didn't pay attention enough, we, we might be talking about God, and we might be talking about religion and ways, but we are not talking about the same God, we are not talking about the same thing and you haven't given enough respect or consideration or proper attention to really listen to the detail you heard what we said you didn't listen to it do you know right now almost 60 percent of all americans believe that christians and i'm just using muslims but we could put all kinds of different religions here are worshiping the same god that 25 percent of all americans will look you in the face and say i believe that all dogs go to heaven and all people go to heaven and what we're doing is, is we're reworking through the modern culture an image of who God is that if you pick up the Bible and you read it, is not at all what Jesus would claim. He would disagree with you vehemently to your face. Say, that is not what I said at all. Listen closer to what I'm saying. I remember Daniel Messiah. He was uh, the individual I bumped into at the World Trade Centers one Sunday. He was going around sharing Jesus with everybody, and then he turns to me, and he starts trying to lead me to Christ. I go, pastor of a church. He goes, oh, oh good to see you. <laughs> you know? But I let him get halfway into a spiel, right? And then it, I just, I don't do this normally. We do not let just anybody get up here and talk. We don't do that. We believe that your life, your walk, all those things need to be in line. We just don't release anybody to lead worship. We don't release just anybody to share and speak to you. We we believe that it's important to have everything together and lined up in your life. And we're not perfect people, you know, but the, those things are in line. But I just felt led. I said, you've got to come to my church and share. And when he was here, he mentioned how he was on death row in prison in Egypt because he converted from Islam to Christianity. Now, I'm not just focusing strictly on Islam. It's just this, these couple of examples are one of them to point out. But while he was there, he walked into the court. They were going to pass sentence on him. He said, before you do anything, I just want to ask three questions. And he, I forget all three of them. The two of them were this. Can you look at me and tell me without a shadow of a doubt that Allah loves you? And that room full, the room full of people, they were like, no. I mean, Allah says submit. But... And then he asked this question. He said, can you tell me without a shadow of a doubt that if you died right now, you would be with Allah in heaven. And they said, no. 
And he turns and he looks at me and he says, well, I want you to know something. The God that you say you know, I know, and I know him as Jesus. And I know that he loves me, and I know that I am going to heaven, and it doesn't matter whether you take my life or not, because he says he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He says he is the resurrection and the life, and he proved it. He died on a cross. He took every sinful, shameful thing that any one of us would ever do, put it on his son, satisfied his justice, and then he turned to the human race in love and said, I want to help you. I want to guide you, and if you'll do it this way, I will set you free, and you will have life and life more abundantly. And he was set free completely. Jesus says it like this, the exclusive claim of Jesus. Jesus said to them, or to him, the one he was talking to, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, listen to the exclusiveness of this language, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. There are not multiple paths to heaven according to the claim of Christianity. Now, you may not believe the claims of Christianity. You might be in a place where you say, you know what? I think there are plenty of people I know that are Christians. They're nice people. I just don't know at this point in my life if I'm buying it. That's, that's, that's the posture you have, you have to take, and that's, that's okay. That's, into, that's being honest with yourself and honest with God. But when it comes to Jesus, you cannot mix him up in a bowl and say, all dogs go to heaven and all people are going to go into eternity and everybody's worshiping the same God. Jesus' language does not allow it. He would look at you and say, do you even know who I am? Are you kidding me? No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because God is holy. Pastor Dylan shared last week about Isaiah. The angels are flying around saying, holy, holy, holy. What does God's holiness do? It magnifies our sinfulness. It just highlights everything that's wrong with us, and we're bare, and we're exposed. And, and so what does God do? He says, I'm holy. You can't approach me, but I love you, and so I'm going to make a way for you, and I'm going to satisfy my justice with the cross, and I'm going to satisfy my love by being able to care for you and accept you and receive you, and if you will put your faith through my son and through the work that he did, you'll have forgiveness and you'll have life eternal with me. See, karma is not the blessing of God. Allah is not the Lord. Jesus is not a prophet like Muhammad. And the wisdom of Buddha is not the wisdom of God. It's different. It's exclusive. And here's the thing about Jesus. He validates his message in two ways. One part of this in all of the religions in the world, on the mouths of all of its spokesmen and spokeswomen, all of the religions in the world, Christianity is the only one that doesn't say love your neighbor, love your friend, love your family, but love your enemies. Only religion. And Jesus didn't just talk it, but he exercised it in the account that we have on the cross where he looked at me and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In other words, if they really knew who I was, if they really knew who I was and what I was about, and what I was trying to do for them, they wouldn't do this. But God, in their ignorance, they don't know who they are. Forgive them. That's, you can only do that kind of love through the power of God. You can't do that in your own, in, in, on your own. It's just impossible. But Jesus validates his message that way. The other is this, is that he said he's the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to get to the Father is through him. But he also said that this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The exclusiveness of Jesus' language. He said that he is the resurrection and the life. He didn't just talk about it, but the Bible says that he was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. Now, I'm not going to pop into to professor mode, but I can quote extra biblical sources that talk about the life of Christ. Uh, Greco-Roman sources that talk about the life of Christ. Josephus, Talmudic Jewish literature that talks all kinds of things like this. But here's the thing that I know from the attorneys that I know personally and the one friend of mine who's a judge in the court of the state of Massachusetts, sorry I can't get, out of your, get you off on the speeding ticket, but I got some good information on this, is that if you were to take the death and resurrection of Jesus based off of the witnesses that we have in Scripture and put that through the court case, it'd be a slam-dunk closed case. Now, you might not believe Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead, but when it comes to American standards in the courtroom, that's a slam dunk. At one point, there are a few people that see him. At another point, he walks into the disciples. Thomas says, I don't care what you say. Don't mess with my heart. Don't mess with my mind. I won't believe you unless I put my finger in the holes where his wrists were nailed and into his side where they pierced him. I won't believe you. And then all of a sudden, he hears a voice saying, Thomas, Stop doubting and believe. And here's the beauty of this. He says this. He says, Thomas, you believe because you saw, but blessed are those who have not seen that do believe. 
How many of you are those people? You're like, I have not seen, but I believe. Because the, the, the authority, and listen, there's so much more to this, and this message isn't about the existence of God and the, the, the valid, validation of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. But what I'm trying to tell you is, is that you know Jesus, but if you say, you'll know God, but if you say no to Jesus, you're not knowing God because he says that he is the only way to get to the Father. He validates and backs up his message by loving his enemies and resurrecting from the dead. Our hope, friends, is sure. Jesus rose from the dead. Dead. And those of you that have said goodbye to people that you love, this is not the end of that message. You will see them again. I will see those people that I love that I've lost, that have entered into eternity and have seen Jesus, and I'm going to see them again because Jesus did it. And he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. That my life is not this life. My life is him. If you know Jesus, you'll know God. But if you want to go know God and say no to Jesus, you're saying no to God. Saying no to God. That's an exclusive statement. You might not agree with it, but I believe with all my heart and I bet everything on it, it is truth. And I believe that if you give God an honest opportunity, for those of you that are newer to this whole thing of Christianity or church, if you really, really, really dug into this and began to talk with people who really know Jesus, not the people I'm telling you that you look at him and say, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be one. I'm not talking about that. But you talk to people who really, really know him. And then you begin to pick up that book called the Bible and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You really, really, I'm telling you, you're on a collision course with knowing the living God. So God wants us to know him. Know Jesus, know God, know Jesus, know God. The other thing is, is really a message here I'd like to turn very briefly to those of us that are followers of Christ, specifically those of you that have been following Jesus, being a Christian, living the Christian life, attending church for a long period of time in all kinds of contexts. And I would say it like this. You won't grow up and know Jesus if you keep saying no to Jesus. It's a little bit of semantics, but track me on this. You won't grow up and know Jesus if you keep saying no to Jesus. One of the most awesome moments in my life was when I walked in so hard and bitter and a pastor told me that God wanted to forgive me of my sins and if I would just invite him to do that and ask for his forgiveness, that he would do that and forgive me and then he would change my life. And I mean, it was like somebody took a thousand pounds off of my back. How many of you had that experience? And you're like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And he walked in and just lifted that burden. I was free. It was like I was clean as a newborn baby infant. And there are some cute babies in this church, by the way. I don't mean to do a sidebar thing on this, but we have some really cute babies. How many of you have seen Sienna's and Matt's baby? Your baby is cute, right? We've got little Conrad running around here with a Thomas train. We've got Jesenia, who's about to give birth to a baby. We've got some really, I mean, like when I say really cute kids, we've got some really cute kids. And it's normal and natural for babies to be in diapers, for babies to act like babies. But it's not normal for us as adults, being 30 years and 40 years old, to act like infants. You might be asking yourself why you're doing this. Just because we can. <laughs> Jim, what do you want? What do you want, buddy? <laughs> Hold on. Here we go. Oh, you got a binky? Cool. All right. Let me give you. Here you go. It's a bottle. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's just a kid at heart. I know, why are we doing this? Just because we can. Think about this for a second here. <laughs> All right, go to your room. <laughs> Quickly. <laughs> There's a point to this. I just saw that, and I instantly saw that outfit, and I said, Jim Jensen. 
<laughs> Any of you, you know him, you love him, you're like, yeah, that's totally natural. But think about this for a second. Think about this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. By the way, the Corinthian church was the most spiritual gifted church. They had all 99 gifts in the spirit flowing all over the place. And they were the most carnal, out of control people. And they, they were the ones that like Paul was deeply frustrated with them. He like writes three letters to them. And in one of them he says this, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, carnal. It was like they weren't even followers, even though they said they were. Why? Because you were as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it. You won't grow up and know Jesus if you keep saying no to Jesus. It is not that you come to Jesus and you say, Lord, I love you. Forgive me of my sin. All right, peace. I'm done. Now I'm going to do this. No, you need to continually come back. Say, Lord, what's the next step? What's the next step? Think about that. Be still and know that I'm God. The problem is, is that some of us, we have the, drive, the steering wheel of our life, and we're telling God, hey, listen, hop in the back seat. Follow me. I know what we're doing. He's like, it's not going to go well. But here's the thing is, is that God's a gentleman. He won't. He won't impose himself on you. You have to invite him. And he won't grab control. You have to release it to come to know who he is. And he has expectations. Listen, I've got two wonderful strapping boys. They're awesome young men. Are they perfect? By no means. Do they make me proud all the time? Do I love them? With my very life. But if my kid is 30 years old, I'm not changing his diaper. If my son... And in fact, just the other day, we had talk about this. I'm not cleaning his room either. He needs to clean that room. You need, but here's the thing is, is that we have so many people in Christ and they're like, I'm a Christian, I'm a mature Christian. And they're running around like an infant and God is looking at you saying, will you please start stepping in the right direction and grow? Why? Because God has more for you. God has greater things for you. God wants to move you through a process of not just knowing him, but finding freedom from the junk in your trunk so that you can discover purpose and make a difference. He wants us to be mature and grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we complicate it when we stunt our growth and we refuse to do the things that we need to that will help us mature and grow. And God says, oh, if I could just help you. See, knowing God, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing God. Uh, how many of you are fans of American Idol? I see that hand. Thank you. Well, recently there was this show on TV called American Idol, and there's this young girl, Angie Miller. She's gone on to write, uh, start a group called Zealand. In fact, you see the word zeal in there, Zealand, and it's that Christian zeal kind of concept. And she's going around, she's singing. She was famous, and she was from the North Shore area, from Beverly. She was on Jay Leno, and then she's hanging out with people. You know that guy, right? And so, uh, and if you don't, then, you know, don't worry about it. But she was so famous, and, and everybody started going around going, ah! It was like, it was this amazing thing. You see, because I know, I've known her since she was a little girl. When I think of Angie, I don't think of Angie Miller. I think of Angela Miller. And I knew her as a teenage girl, worshiping God and loving him. In fact, we knew her personally. And I, I know her because I know that she loved my boys. That's actually Ethan in the middle there. That's a love sandwich right there. We're the rock star. But here's the thing is, is that we've got so many people running around saying, I know him, but... But God's saying, no, don't just know about me. I want you to know me, to know me. And Paul says it like this in the PCV version. By this is the Paul Conway version uh, for my handful of friends here that do Greek and Hebrew translations. It's a transliteration, so don't come after me on this. But I want you to catch the meaning of this, what it means. Paul says this, I want to know him. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I mean, there aren't too many people claiming they rose from the dead. He's, that is power to reverse death. That's what Jesus did. That is power. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and through the experience, the fellowship of his sufferings, just as he suffered. And we talked about following in Jesus' steps last week. And it says that Jesus has set us an example to walk in his steps. Listen, God is a good, good father, but he's not a superstar seeking groupies. And he's not a shallow in his gospel that it only works when life is prospering. He's seeking people who want to know him, really know him. Because you will never grow up in Jesus if you keep saying no to Jesus. If you keep saying 
no, God, I won't do that. No, God, you can't do that. No, Lord, I'm going to do it my way, not your way. No, Lord, we should do it like this and we do it like that. No, Jesus, follow me instead of me following you. I know I got this and, you know, you just don't know me quite like I do. And the Lord says, my goodness, that you would know me. To know that not all paths are the yellow brick road, but the Jesus way is called the Via Dolorosa. And I'm just saying this to you in love. I believe in the power of God. I believe in the blessing of God. I believe in the miracle of God. But if your gospel only works with wealth and miracles and it does not know how to walk the Via Dolorosa, it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel and the hope that Jesus gives us is not just for the difficult moments in our, for the good moments in our life, but it's for the difficult moments. And sometimes God hinges those with one aspect of this and the other, but that he wants people that will really know him, know that, that sometimes God doesn't, isn't the author of bad things, but he works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. I don't mean to make this vulnerable, but I just have to share this moment, Jenny, real quick with this group here. Just recently, I had the honor of being with Vivian and her sisters. A couple of them were in there after, the mother, after their mother had passed. And we just began to pray, and different people were saying different things. But then all of a sudden, Jenny, you started doing this. You were like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And then Jerry starts going, thank you, Jesus. And then Vivian starts going, thank you, Jesus, in her Vivian way. How can you say thank you at such a tragic, difficult moment? It's because they know who they're following. And they know that God is good even when the circumstances aren't. And they know that regardless of what is going on around me, what's important is, is that we know God within us and we know that God is in control and that we can be still and let go and know that he's God and he will work all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. I want to end with this thought and I'm just going to ask the team to come up real quick. Uh, two, two thoughts very quickly here. First is one more story. A man, he had a dream. And um, in his dream, he walks into heaven and God says to him, my son, you've been struggling for so long. I just want to make it easier for you. And so what I'd like you to do is go into this room. There's a room filled with crosses. Pick whichever one you want to bear. Leave the one that you've been carrying. I know you've been carrying your cross and you want to exchange it. I give you the free choice. Pick what you want. He goes and he sees the big one at first and he's like, no way am I carrying that. Then he looks at some fancy ones and he sees there's price tags attached to it and he says, uh, as nice as that is, I don't want to have to pay in that way to carry that kind of nice ornate thing. I need a break in life. <coughs> Finally, he finds this teeny tiny little stick of a cross. That's it. That's it. Woo. This is the one I want, Lord. The Lord says, oh, I'm sorry. I should have said this beforehand. You can take any cross in this room except the one that you brought in with you. Me losing my car does not compare with the loss that you or Alicia, what you lost, or David and Anita and Comfort, what you lost. But I know this. 2 Corinthians says, the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit that our Savior is with us and brings us to mighty high moments, but also walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And because of that, we can fear no evil. We can trust in him. We can let go of control because the one that is in control is a good God. I've shared this story before, but never from this angle. Uh, I go back and forth to Israel a lot. It's a blessing for my education that God opened this door for me. But this was the one year that I had the privilege to take my whole family. We sold our home. We said, you know what? You can save a lot of things and you can buy a lot of things. We're going to buy a memory that we'll never forget. And I said, we're bringing my family. And so all of us for the first time, first time my wife even went, I'd been there about like 15 times already. And we all went as a family. And Andrew, he's the bird whisperer, as you can see here. And he, everywhere he went, he would put Little, little bits in his hand. You remember that, bro? And, and, and he would just do that, and all of a sudden the bird would fly down and start nipping away at it. And I tell you something, Israel is as safe as can be, man. The, the Israeli Defense Force is amazing, but it's like America. It's, you go into the right parts of town, and you stay out of the wrong ones, and you go in the right hours of, of the day and not the wrong ones. And so we were in this part of the city where there was lots of weaving, and, and if you take your eyes off of the person you're supposed to be following, you just totally miss it. And so we were in the city of David. 
And we took a turn right as a group. And all of a sudden, I noticed Andrew wasn't there. This must have been Jesus and Mary when, you know, where is he? Where's that kid? And all of a sudden, my heart was gripped. I ran up to the security and I said this to them. I said, my son is missing. They got the saying in Hebrew, en baya, no problem. Don't worry about it. And they're just all happy and smiling. I said, no, lo en baya. I go, my son is missing. And I think he walked down the staircase into Selwan. Because in Selwan, it is right at, across from the area where we were, and that's a picture of it, of a section of the city that has some of the most violent stone chuckers you'd ever see in your life. Some pretty unsavory characters and terrorism has come right out of the section. It's contained, but this is the only place in Jerusalem where you can just walk down a staircase and not even know what you're walking into. I said, I think he's in Selwan. And all of a sudden, they just jumped to their feet. They went down because they realize and they know what this area is like. All the cars that travel through there have mesh over the windshields because they're constantly blowing them out with rocks. They sent the defense force went down into Selwan, fully armed all through that area. They started running through the spot, all through the places that we might have lost them. And we turn a corner. There's Andrew. Plucking away. When I think about this story, I think about God. I think about us. I think about those of us who have been in the faith for so long. And Christianity is just this motion that we go through, this thing that we teach and preach about, this book that we read from time to time, this place that we go two times a month and maybe three or, you know, if it's interesting enough and all that. And God is in heaven like I was on earth looking and he's saying, my goodness, my son is lost. My kid's missing. My kid is missing and he's in danger. And everybody just kind of looks at him and says, and by uh, for those of you that are followers of Christ, when was the last time you shared what God did with you? Because God is in heaven right now looking at you and me saying, there are 4.5 billion people in this world and most of them have never had the chance to even hear about Jesus to reject him, let alone you living with those people and working with those people that you won't share him because you're embarrassed or because you just think it's not a good moment. And God is looking at you saying, my goodness, my son, my daughter is in danger and they don't even know the peril and they're clueless to what's going on. Will you share it? Will you share it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And neither should you be. Because it is the power of God to salvation. It is the truth of God that got off of his throne and came to earth and said, I cannot let it slide. I am a God of justice. If I weigh your life according to my standard, you are hopelessly lost. But I love you so much, I'm going to make a way, the only way, and I want to help you. And it's going to be through my son. And I'm going to allow him to walk through this world to show you that if he can do it, you can do it. And he's going to die on a cross and all of the filth of the world, all of the shame of the world, all of the sin of the world, it's going to be put on him. And anyone that will look up at that cross and at that son of mine and say, please forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. Wash away my shame and my guilt. I will make a way for them. That's the, God is looking at the universe and he's saying, I've made a way. Please, please let me help you. Please. Not only that, but I think about my son, Andrew. That's a lot like many of us, distracted of the real danger that's pending there. Remember I said at the beginning of this message, I said, you know what, God is reworked into an image. You know what, one of the images that we've worked into him is, is that he's a God of love without justice. And the first thing people will say is, man, man, my God's love. Don't be talking about that negative stuff. You need to read through the prophets like we've been doing. God definitely has issue with sin and he brings it up again and again and again. But here, here he is and God is saying, I'm a God of justice. I, 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 have to, I have to deal with this stuff. And the Bible says this in Hebrews, it says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. You might say to yourself, well, I'm good, man. My heart's good. Me and Jesus, you know, he's my homeboy. We're good. Everything's all right. No, no, it is not good. You know why? Because Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is the most deceitful of all things, desperately wicked. Who really knows it? You know what I did for most of my life? I wrote myself into the story as the hero when the truth was I was the villain. 
That's what we do with human nature. We give ourselves presidential pardons and passes for things that a holy, righteous God says, none of this will enter into my presence. I refuse to do it. But there's a way. There's a truth. There's a life. It's Jesus. Let me tell you something. You are far more wicked than you would ever imagine. But you are far more loved and have far more hope in Jesus than you ever could believe. That's what Tim Keller says. That's what Jesus would say to us here. I'd like to say this real quick. A couple of steps here we're going to do. First is this, is if you have never, maybe you've done church, maybe this is your first time in church. There's so many different people that come through all the time, but maybe you've just gone through church and you've never even really surrendered. You never were still and like, God be God. You never said to God, listen, Lord, I'm guilty. Please forgive me. You've never really said, Lord, I'm not going to try and take control of my life. I'm not going to try and make excuses for my life. I'm going to let you be my life. Forgive me of my sin. Change me. Forgive me. That's a step we're going to do here in a minute. Not only that, here's the other one. Water baptism. If you're a Christian and you've been in the faith for a long period of time and you've never got water baptized, you need to go back to the basic and get that done. The Bible says that's our way of making public what God did privately for us. He says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. It is the next step. You know what? My kids all the time, we'll ask them to do something. You know what they say? Say it with me. You know what teenagers' kids say when you say, do that. Why? Why? And what do I say in reply? Because what? Because I said so. Here's the thing I say to my kids, my follow-up to this is this. If you can't submit to the things in this life that don't make sense to you or even seem silly to you now, how will you ever respond for the things that are lethal, deadly, and dangerous in your life by the, by the, by the intervention of somebody? You'll never be ready. You won't learn what it is to yield and submit. Why? Because God says to do it. Just do it for that reason. But there's a thousand reasons. Why would you not want everybody to know? Listen, I died with Jesus. I was buried with him. I resurrected with him. I'm a new parson. I'm forgiven. I'm clean. I'm new. We're going to celebrate water baptism on the 28th. It is going to be awesome. We have people from TC getting baptized. We've got other people here. Why not you? Why not you? But in order to do this of coming to God, you got to do some surrendering. You need to surrender the control of your life, the grip. You need to surrender your pride. You can't make up the loss in this. You need to surrender your way of life. It doesn't work unless he's God and he's first. You need to sign up for next every week, 9 o'clock, last room on the right. Every week, we've got these steps going on there. To those of you that call yourselves Christians, baptism. If you've never done it, you need to do it, but it's time to move from childhood and adolescence into adulthood and say, oh God, it's never too late for me to be the person I was supposed to be. Help me. Help me to not be a child. Help me to be a warrior. Help me to be somebody that you're calling me to be. Stop doing sugar Jesus. Stop doing groupie Jesus and start doing scriptural Jesus and follow him. Follow him. I'd like us to stand across this room here this morning. I've laid it out so clear. Really, how you respond or the results of this is completely, completely your, yours. I can't take those steps for you. Oh my goodness, if you could open up a window to heaven, you'd see God saying, please let me help you, please. What can I do? Help me to move you forward. I'll catch you. Just, just take that step, but you're here today. And I ask you if you close your eyes and bow your heads, you're here today. And this whole church thing is like, man, I just walked in here and I, or, or man, I've been to church, but it ain't never been like this. And I hear what you're saying. And if I weigh out the 10 commandments, God must be first, no lying, no stealing, no adultery, no fornication, no coveting, all those things. Oh my goodness, it's hopeless for me. Too late, guilty. But it, I hear what you're saying, that there's a God in heaven that has made a way for me to be forgiven through Jesus Christ. And I want to give him that window. If that's you here today with every head bowed, every eye closed, if that's you here today, just quickly and quietly and privately, just lift your hand and say, that's me, Pastor. Please just pray for me. Just pray for me. I see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Second part of this is saying, man, I know God has so much for me, but so much time has passed and I don't know if I can catch up. But... 
I'm ready to start taking those steps to move into maturity in Jesus, but I'm going to need a lot of cheering. I'm going to need a lot of encouragement. This isn't going to come easy to me. Man, my pride's on the line. Some people think I'm something that I'm not, but pastor, if you would pray that God would help me. If that's you here this morning, I'm going to ask you with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you'd lift your hand quickly and put it down. Say, that's me, pastor. Pray for me. Thank you. Thank you. Here's what we're going to do. I believe the step is yours and it's a little bit past our normal time, but we're still in a good window. If this spoke to you on any level, I want to invite you to come forward here as the band plays. I don't want you to talk to me. I want you to talk to him. Maybe it's the first time in your life and you're kind of like, I don't know what to say. Take what we've said here, wherever it applies to your life and talk it through with him. Kneel if you need to kneel. Stand if you need to stand. But we're going to keep a a quiet, respectful moment of prayer and allow you to take that first step and solidify it with God. God's got good things for your life. You might not be as good as you thought, but oh my goodness, God has so much greater for you than you ever hoped or dreamed. He's a good God and he's with you. Amen? As the band plays, I'm going to ask those of you that want, you can come forward find a place of prayer. We'll continue until you're done. Those of you that need to go, if you just be quiet and respectful for those that are here. God bless you. We love you. Thank you for being here for the second week. Next week, we're going to talk about finding freedom. I love you. We're praying for you. God bless you as you come and as you go.